Good morning. We're a little tardy this morning. We had uh, some shocker technical difficulties here at New Life. Uh, welcome, welcome to New Life. We're happy that you're with us. Um, I, uh, I just, we're actually going to jump right into a time. I, I literally got here like 30 seconds ago. So we're just going to jump right into a time of worship. Uh, that's why we're here, right? Is that why we're here? Okay, would you stand up? I've got a verse that's going to pop up. Uh, this, today we're going we're gonna, to uh, speak this verse uh, before, as we kind of prepare our hearts to sing and worship uh, the Lord today. This is Psalm 16, 9 through 11. So you can just uh, speak this psalm with me. And, uh, and then I've just got a quick challenge before we start singing this morning. It's, uh, it goes like this. Speak with me. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's my challenge to you this morning, and, and this is a challenge for me as well. As we're looking at the breastplate of righteousness, uh, there's this reality that we are secure in Christ, that he hung naked on a cross so that we can be clothed in his righteousness. And he didn't just purchase you, uh, your future. He didn't just purchase eternity. He purchased today. And so that is why we're here today to worship him, to celebrate, but to remember uh, that we were bought with a price and that price was steep. We could never, there's nothing that we could do uh, to be righteous in his eyes. It is only the blood of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Would you just greet, we're going to start, but would you greet your neighbor this morning as we kind of just get ready to worship together?
nice that it's not up to us. Amen? Let's uh, just continue to worship. Would you bow with me? I just want to pray. Father, we just thank you for your son. We thank you, Jesus, for dying on that cross. And we thank you that your blood purchased us. We thank you that we have security forever in you. Um, but God, we also just remember this moment. Whatever burdens we may be bringing here this morning, maybe whatever's going on in our, in our homes, uh, maybe it's family strife, sickness, health issues, whatever it may be, God, uh, we know that your, uh, your blood has power not just for eternity but for today, that you are the healer. And that, God, we just, we just pray for that this morning. We ask um, that your spirit would just invade this place. Would you comfort those that need comfort? Would you give hope to those who need hope? And would we, above all else, look to you? Would we turn our eyes up to you, Jesus, as we focus on the author and the perfecter of our faith this morning? We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's just continue to uh, worship this morning.
what can wash away? Sing We thank you that your blood covers our sins, and we thank you that when you died, you died in our place, but when you rose, you rose so that we can have new life in you, eternity, and in the here and now, and so, God, we're just singing this theology to you this morning, that there's a war waging, but that we have the victory in you, and so it doesn't matter how we come into this space, because we have you, we have already won. And we thank you and we love you. And we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Have a seat. It feels good to be in church, doesn't it? It just feels good. And it feels, there's a reason it feels peaceful. It's because the peace of God is is resting amongst his people. And so whatever you've been through, it's like you come here. I hear this all the time. I came here and I just felt at peace. And so the reason is you don't even know it yet. Maybe you don't even, not even saved yet, but you're sensing something happening. And what you're seeing happening is Christ ruling and reigning in this space amongst his people, not in the building. This building is just an old uh, commercial building that we changed into, you know, a structure where we could worship. It's not the, it's not the place, it's the people. And so we come into this place, and, and, and it means something, because now 
we're gathered amongst the people of God to do the will of God, to fulfill the purposes and plans of His Son, Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, we've been talking about spiritual warfare. We're going to just keep on this conversation, looking what it looks like to put on the armor of God, to fight the battles that are before us, not through our own power, but through the power of God in our life. And just a couple of things I want to tell you. Uh, one does not affect a lot of you, but I think it's so cool I want to bring attention to it. Right now it's only happening once a month, uh, and the next one's on May 11th. But Ruby Ketterling and a few other ladies in our church have started a widow support group. And I feel like that's, although it doesn't affect the majority of the church, it's just something to bring to light because it's really central to how we operate. Uh, if you are, though, in that situation, uh, we want you to know that you're not alone. You can put on your connection card you'd like to join the group. It's May 11th, and they're meeting monthly, and that could change. We could see more meetings than just monthly. We don't know yet. Uh, but I want to bring that before you. I just think that I heard about that. I love that they're doing that. And I think they also bake within it. So just a little bit of incentive there. And then the other thing is Wednesday night is the final gospel project, and so make sure you are at that, and there'll be some food and ice cream to follow. All right, so here we go. Just a recap. We're going to kind of build on each principle each week because I do think they build off of each other. Uh, but we're looking at the armor of God, and what I've told you week after week now, or last, the last two weeks, is that um, spiritual warfare is like football in that you have to take a hit, and what else do you have to Give a hit. And so to do that, you get this armor, just like football gear that you would put on. And so you take a hit and you give a hit. But the good news is you don't take a hit alone. You take a hit in Christ. He already took the hit. And because of that, now you get this spiritual armor. And that the devil ultimately has been defeated, although he's still roaming on the earth. He already knows. He's trying to wreak as much havoc as he can in this life because he already knows his final destination. He knows the Bible. He knows what the book of Revelation says. He knows the lake of fire that's waiting for him. And so he's running wild now, uh, but, but his time is limited. And so he has an agenda. He hates God. He wants to... Uh, get in the way in the plans and purposes of God. He, he hates us as a result. And instead of loving God because he hates, us, hates God, we, in contrast, love God if we've been saved. And so because of that, we are on a massive collision course with the enemy. His job is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And if you don't understand that, then you become victimized by the enemy. And so you not only lose your life potentially, but you lose your effectiveness as a follower of Christ when you don't understand what's at stake. And so here's been the text, starting verse 10, book of Ephesians, you'll see it on the screen. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And we've been learning in the last two weeks. He is a schemer. He's a liar. He's a manipulator. He doesn't just tell lies. He is one huge lie. He's the father of lies. It's really what encompasses his DNA. And here's the invisible that affects the visible right here, the next verse. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, even the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, this is our command. This is our charge. This is how we hold our post. This is what makes it a spiritual battle. The response that we have with the armor on is we stand firm. And to stand firm means to not wander away, to be anchored into a truth. 
And without that anchor, we are in massive trouble. We get six pieces of armor. Today's our second. The first three you wear all the time. The last three you prescribe as needed. And so I told you, I think last week, I think I told you guys this, that it's kind of like playing baseball. You wear the cleats all the time. You wear the jersey all the time. That's, that's a piece of armor that you have. Uh, but then some things you just take up as needed, like the sword of the spirit that we'll get to in a few weeks. You take up as needed, as you need it to fight. That's your offensive weapon. And it's kind of like your baseball glove or your bat. You take it up when, it, it, you, when your name is called to fight that battle. But this one today is never leave home without it. So here's verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, never leave home without it. And then having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and this is where we're going to camp out today. But regarding the truth, here's what we need to know. That the devil's best strategy is to undermine God's character and his credibility. He's trying to do something. He's a schemer. What he wants you to do is to doubt God. And so since the beginning of man entering into the equation with woman, even in the Garden of Eden, he's, he's scheming, he's crafting, he says things that are uh, not seemingly overtly lies. He just starts kind of planting seeds of doubt. And he says things like, did God really say that? Or did God really mean that? And even when Jesus is in the wilderness, he's saying, you know, if you are the Son of God, then do this. If you are the Son of God, do, do this and do that. And so Satan's big scheme is to get you to believe that God's a liar and that he's telling you the truth. To mix and convolute the process. Truth being defined by an objective standard by which all reality is measured, and that is God himself. Truth predicated not on how you feel, but on the reality to which you live. God Almighty is the standard of truth. We don't just have truth, we put on the belt of truth. We wear it. And we wear it all the time. And when we take it off, then we see havoc being wreaked all around us, and it infiltrates into the church. And so here we go, the next one. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. And here's where we write stuff down. What is the purpose of the breastplate? So in war, it has a, a, a functional purpose that's fairly obvious, right? You don't want to get an arrow shot at you, and you don't want it to affect you or hit your chest. And so the purpose of the plate, write it down, is to protect something. The purpose of the plate is to protect your heart. And without it, you're a dead man walking if you're in battle. So when we get saved, our heart is changed. We get a new mind. We're going to read some scripture in a little bit. We get a new heart. When we die and go to be with Jesus, we get a new body. And so we live in this tension of the here and now, which is the already but not yet spiritually. So we, we already get this new heart, but yet we still have to experience the ramifications and the devastation of the enemy roaming and ruling. In this world, he's the prince of darkness, and then our sin nature reaching, wreaking havoc around us. And so there is this already but not yet, theologically, that takes place. And so the old has passed away. We don't fight for victory if we fight from it. But in the midst of all that, because of the complications of what's going on in the here and now, if we don't have our spiritual armor on, if we don't have our chest protector on, then we become vulnerable to the plans and schemes of the evil one. What righteousness does is it protects your spiritual heart. And righteousness has a definition that we're going to walk in that I'd like you to write down or at least imprint on your mind this morning when you're with us. Righteousness is the standard that God requires for people to become acceptable to Him. That, that is the biblical understanding of what it means to be righteous. I'm going to say it one more time. 
Righteousness is the standard that God requires, not that you require, not that other people around you require. The standard that God requires for people to, come accept, to become acceptable to Him. Righteousness is a standard that God holds, and that standard is predicated because these things build on each other. Righteousness is a standard that God's hold, God holds, and that standard is predicated on the truth of God. And that's our framework for understanding this entire com- conversation. And so what is the opposite of righteousness? I was talking to a praying with an elder this morning. He's saying if you just break down the term, it's to be right. God is right 100% of the time. He's never wrong. And so the opposite of righteousness is wrongness. The opposite of righteousness is sin. Functioning or operating in the opposition to the truth. Righteousness comes from God. He's the standard. And then what we can't do is we can't lower that standard. Another thing that we can't do is we, we cannot look around to try to find the standard. So we don't look to somebody else for righteousness because the Bible says in Isaiah that even our good deeds are like filthy rags. And so if you're looking to the person next to you as the standard of righteousness in your life, then you will be forever disappointed. In fact, that's what religious, religion does. And we'll get to that in just a second, that the power and the, and the destruction of religion without relationship. Religion looks around. Religion tries to work its way up. But if you lower the standard, then you have created and convoluted the dysfunction of a process that God is saying, no, righteousness comes down. You do not earn your way to God through trying to have a standard that's not of God. You don't change the standard of God. God has a standard of holiness that does not shift. It's like basketball. Did anyone ever have a basketball hoop in their front yard growing up? It's kind of like a lost art, and maybe that's because we're in South Dakota, but growing up, we had basketball hoops. I remember uh, exchanging the basketball hoop in eighth grade. Uh, I got a huffy rim after eighth grade, and my dad, uh, he went from the, the old school wooden backboard to the plastic backboard, and we put the cement in the ground and the pole. And the reason I wanted that backboard was because it did something. Who's a product of the 90s? Who already knows what that thing did that the one on the garage would not do? What did it do? It adjusted, right? You tracking? Because everyone was watching Michael Jordan and thinking, I could do that. All I need to do is lower that thing. And how high is an official basketball hoop? It's what? It's 10 feet. Who in here can flush on 10 feet? Lies. Like, I already know you're lying. Anyone? Was everyone, anyone like a dunker back in the day? Have you ever noticed that everyone used to be able to do that? And you're like, here, do it now. Well, I don't know. You know, I got a bad knee. Right? The standard is 10 feet high. If you lower the goal, you lower the standard. And so what we do is we lower the rim. We lower the standard of righteousness that God requires from his people, and then we think we've accomplished something. Like we watch the dunk contest on the NBA, in the NBA, and we go, oh, I can do a 360. And yeah, you're doing a 360, but you're literally so low to the ground, you're not jumping, you're just spinning in a circle and dunking the ball. Because you got that huffy rim from your dad in eighth grade. Adjusting the standard to fit you negates the value of the basket being made. Or maybe a simple way to say it is this. Anyone seen White Men Can't Jump? That's not going anywhere. I just like saying that. If you dunk on an eight-foot rim, it doesn't mean anything. So God's standard is perfect. It's way above us. And there becomes a problem with us pursuing righteousness that's not gifted to us from Christ as we put on this armor. In that apart from God's power in our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ bleeding out on that cross and raising from death and the Holy Spirit living in us, 
the problem with the righteous standard, the problem with the 10-foot rim, rim is it might well be 100 feet because you'll never be able to dunk it. God's standard is so perfect and so holy that you will never obtain it. And the reason we know it's so difficult is he doesn't just give us the Old Testament with the laws and the Ten Commandments to be covered. He starts telling us, you've heard it said, now I say. And when he says that in the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament, Jesus creates this standard that cannot be met. He starts going after something more than just our behavior. Jesus is saying it's not just a sin in the behavior that you possess. Your motivations, your heart level affections are the root cause of your sin. And so he says things like this. He says, you've heard it said that it's a sin to murder. And everyone's going, well, that makes sense. And I've never done that. And he's saying that, he says, he takes it up a notch so we're all guilty. He says, no, if you've even hated someone in your heart, if you have this unforgiveness and hostility in your heart, then you've already committed murder. And now everyone takes a step back and go, oh my goodness, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short. None of us are righteous. The hoop might as well be 100 feet high. Even when we try our hardest, our motivations contaminate the evidence. I mean, how many of you wish that God graded on a sliding scale? Are you familiar with the sliding scale? You, you probably experienced a sliding scale when you took like a science class uh, as, a, as a general in college where you knew you were going to major in something like communications, but you have to throw in that one science class. And then there are the kids that are the pre-med kids, and they just jack up the whole thing. Are you tracking? And no one in your communications, no offense if you're a communications major, I communicate for a living, and, you know, I can talk, but I'm not that smart. And so, like, you have the science nerds in there, and it's a sliding scale, and you're going, man, if I could just take this class with all the, you know, primitive minds that are like mine, then I could do pretty well, because the teacher is going to take a sliding scale, and if the highest score is a C, if the rim can be lowered to eight feet, then all of a sudden, I'm going to get a better grade because she's going to give some people an A or he's going to give some people an A. Any professors in here, you know what I'm talking about? It's like you have the dumb-dumb, so you have to accommodate. But then there's that one science nerd that gets 100%, that pre-med kid that you want to give a wedgie to after class. Are you tracking? And they mess the whole thing up, and someday you're going to call them something. You know what they're going to call them? Boss and sir or ma'am. And they mess up the scale. God's righteousness is not a sliding scale in your life. The rim doesn't change regardless of how many people can't dunk the ball. And so that becomes a problem. But then the good news becomes this. There is one that makes us righteous. And when he makes us righteous through what he's done, he puts it on us, now we can wear a breastplate of righteousness so that we can fight off the attacks and schemes of the evil one. And so what I'm really trying to say as we are getting into this and we get more application in just a second is that without Jesus Christ, you're cooked before you start. The rim's not going to change, but it's like he gives you some massive hops spiritually so that you can meet the standard, that you can dunk the ball, that you can live a life that he's intended you to live, not because of what you've done. That's religion. Religion will always fall short. Religion will always work its way up. Religion will always try to manage sin from the outside, but it has no capacity to eliminate it. Religion only deals with the symptomology. It's like if you go to the dentist, and someone actually called me this last week, a high school kid said, I cracked my tooth. 
what do I do? And I said, well, you should probably go to the dentist. They said, well, you know, can you, can you help me with that? And so someone got involved. I don't even know. I don't even know if they lost their tooth. But they said, I think I'm going to lose my tooth. And so uh, here's what happens if you get an on-call. There's a dentist, a couple of dentists, I think, in the crowd. You, you know this is true. If you get an on-call call uh, as a dentist, and you just deal with symptomology and not the root cause, then you're going to deal with pain, but you're not going to deal with the infection. And so if someone needs their tooth pulled, if their tooth is dead, what you can do in the short term, am I right? Is this how it works? If you can do in the short term is you can give them pain management. And that's kind of what religion does. It just kind of covers the bases. It keeps the status quo. It makes it feel like things are better, but it doesn't deal with the root cause. You have to pull out the infection. You have to pull the tooth if possible, if that's what's needed, because you're just dealing with temporary relief because the standard for the cure has not been met. Are we all tracking? That's the problem with righteousness, and then the solution becomes Jesus. And that's why Christianity is the only religion that works. And when we don't understand that, when we don't walk in the righteousness that we can wear through the breastplate of righteousness that protects, there is a devastation that ensues. Write this down. There is a devastation in your life for not wearing the plate. And we're going to get more applicable now. There's a devastation in your life of not wearing, of not putting on all of this armor, but specifically of not wearing the plate because the plate protects something. And track with me. Stay with me. Look at me. The plate protects what? It protects the heart. And so here's what the plate does specifically. It protects the spiritual heart. And the job of the heart is to pump life to the rest of you. You can deal with losing a limb. You can deal with losing a toe. You can deal with some short-term sickness. But I've never seen anyone live without a heart. If the heart's not working right, the blood's not flowing right. If the blood's not flowing right, the rest of you's not working right. Unless the heart is right, the flow of the rest of your body is wrong. And so spiritually, the spiritual heart is the spiritual pump that pumps life, the life of God into you. And that's something that's supernatural in your life. And so the devastation of not wearing this protective armor is that your spiritual heart is left wide open for attack. Wide open. When you're saved, something happens in your life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. New heart, new mind, new life in Christ. You don't have to do the things that you've always done. You don't have to live the way you've always lived. You're made new at the point of salvation. And then you're living in the already but not yet. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of, of the Holy Spirit. And so this righteousness is placed on you. You get a new spiritual heart. Your heart is dead. Now it's alive in Christ. And so here's where I want to get very specific. And I want you to remember these things that I tell you. I've heard them from someone smarter than me, at least this portion. I want you to hear it as well. When you do not wear the plate, there is something supernatural that's happening in your life that you need to understand. In fact, there are two things. And this is what I want you to remember. When you take off the place, plate, two things supernaturally are taking place in your life, and they're happening simultaneously. When you take off the plate, when you put down the righteousness of Christ that rules and reigns in your life, two things happen. Unrighteousness, 
or simultaneously, unrighteousness invites the demonic while at the same time it blocks the move of God in your life. I think that's worth writing down because I would want to know that. When you don't wear the breastplate, two things are simultaneously happening in your life. You are inviting the presence of the enemy to rule and to reign, and you're blocking the move of God in your life. The heart is not protected. And so, so here's more specifically even what happens in the demonic realm. Demons, Satan himself, feeds on sin. I heard it said like this, demons live on the trash that's in your heart. And so sin is wrong, of course, but sin actually does something. Sin invites into your life a demonic invitation. Sin invites demons to join the process. I, uh, I live at a farm. And we do not have a garbage man. The garbage man's name is Rodney. And I, I don't know. You can maybe tell me after church. We live out by Richmond. If there's an effective, cheap way to hire someone for this, then I'll probably, after five years, go that route. But I, uh, I'm cheap, and so I take out all the trash. And I have such full intentions of taking out the trash regularly. And it really doesn't matter that much in the wintertime, right? I mean, you could go a while because you could freeze it. But... When it's like uh, July, and then it's in the shed, and I have these five trash cans. And i got five of them, so that takes a while. You know, my kids eat a lot, but it still takes a while. And so it starts piling up. And, you know, if you live in the city, like you rich folks that have all these luxuries in the city, the garbage guy comes every week. But my garbage guy is me, and so he doesn't come every week. Uh, he, he might come every other week, and then I might really space it off and think, oh, there's still two trash cans left. But my garbage guy, sometimes in the summer, if he only comes once a month, there's something really disgusting that happens. Have you guys ever dealt with nasty trash? I'm talking next level, maggots, roaches. Have you ever, I'm going to be super gross. I just thought of this right on the spot. Have you ever turned the trash over after like a month in the summer and it's gooey? Yeah, me neither. Uh, but sin, sin is inviting this demonic invitation when you put down righteousness of trash building up in your life. And so sin is the trash, right? But then what happens? There's an invitation when the trash starts piling up. And it's an invitation to all these disgusting things. I'm not a scientist. I don't know how they all form, but they, they're weird. They're like little worms and what do you call those things? Maggots, okay. And they're like roaches and disgust. Like, and it's even worse if it's in your house, if you've gone on vacation, or have you ever left trash in your car too long? It's just absolutely disgusting because you're inviting these things in. It's not just the trash now. It's the things that feed on the trash. Trash is trashy, but it also has an invitation to it. And so when you don't deal with the trash, you allow Satan to rule and to reign. The demonic realm makes itself at home in your life. And so what we do is what I do is we settle for trash management. You don't want to go take it out, or maybe it's in your house and you have people coming over, and so you're hurrying to clean, and you're like, well, I'm just going to put it in this room over here. And you can get away with that for a while, and you think because you've kept it hidden that no one sees it and that the house is clean, but what happens, not only do you start to attract things that are disgusting, what happens after the trash has been there for a while? Now it manifests for everyone to see, and more importantly, it manifests for everyone to smell. Because trash 
starts to smell. When you do not put on a breastplate of righteousness and obey the word of God, which is the truth of God, then all of a sudden now you have this trash management approach, and that's religion. And in the trash management system, the problem is no matter how much you hide it, no matter how much you smash it, it still attracts and unrighteousness attracts unrighteousness, attracts unrighteousness. It's a domino effect that the enemy uses. And so now you have these roaches and you have these maggots that have formed. But now you have this smell that you can no longer hide. And God smells immediately an unrighteous scent. And you can fool everyone else around you for so long. But in the spiritual realm, no one is fooled. The gospel is not about behavior modification. The gospel is all about heart transformation. And so in the spiritual realm, everyone knows what's really going on. And no one, no one is fooled. More specifically, the righteous standard is never fooled. So God sees the condition of our heart. He sees the garbage that's formed, and he knows our attempt to hide it. A perfect cocktail for destruction can, can form. Let me give you a specific example. Garbage being let in in your life. Maybe it's self-pity. Maybe it's making excuses for your sin. Or maybe instead of being consumed by the Word of God, you're consumed by social media. You're consumed by ungodly perspective. You're consumed by self-help instead of gospel transformation. You're consumed by a perspective that's destroying your life. And it's been going on since an early age because you've been letting in this garbage instead of letting in the Word of God, the truth of God that transforms. And you have a perspective it's not a biblical perspective. You have a worldly perspective. It tends to manifest like this in counseling. It's the I deserve a perspective. And at the center of your gospel universe, there's a Savior to be worshipped, and the Savior is you. Now, I'm not saying you think that consciously, but that's the evidence. And so then you get a little older. This is when you're young. Everyone says, well, when you're young, everyone makes mistakes. Everyone has a bad perspective. But for you, it's never changed. You've just kind of carried it into the next stage of life. And then you find Mr. or Mrs. what you think is right. You're living in a stage of life where it is, tends to be filled with some form of contentment where you have good things going on around you. I'm going to tell you real quick about a, a study that I recently read. There is a happiness continuum, and it takes the face of a smiley face. And that sounds really cute, but here's what the smiley face looks like from 0 to 45, actually from 0 to 75. The first 25 years of your life, if you're a Christian or not, tends to be lived with some level of contentment because you haven't lived yet. You haven't had money being tight, a spouse that's driving you nuts, children that won't sleep, diapers that need to be changed. And so 0 to 25, you think life's hard, but you don't know. And then 25 to 45, those are the hard years. That's what research tells us. 25 to 45, the money's tight. The fairy tale has ended. And uh, you didn't realize, especially as a man, how hard it would be to take care of other people. The most stressors, the least money, the highest levels of sacrifice, 25 to 45. And so the, the smiley face looks like it's, it's going pretty good, and then you dip down way low. And then here's the good news if you're getting out of that. I've got two years left. I've got like three weeks left, actually, before one of them is like, see you later, right? But, 20, but 45 to... Death actually levels of satisfaction. So if you're not happy in this stage, just know that that's not good. 45 and on tend to be the highest level of satisfaction and happiness and contentment that you will ever face. But going back to the story, here's the perfect cocktail. From a young age, you're letting garbage in, garbage in. I deserve self-pity. 
ungodly perspective, consumed with the world around you as your standard of truth, consumed with the world around you as your standard of righteousness, and you walk in this ungodly self-help, I deserve perspective, and you think life's going pretty good, and you think that's working for you, and this is what we see all the time. And then 25 to 45, the rubber meets the road. And so you think, because I deserve, then all of a sudden, once you deserve, which is really scary because the gospel is you deserve death and God gives you life, but you think I deserve and you worship self. And then when life gets hard, what happens? You pack your bags and you move on. And you go from one relationship to another. And your kids go to live with someone else who's raising kids. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You know what the world looks like. And so you let this garbage into your life, and it's the perfect cocktail. Your whole life you've escaped. Your whole life you've looked to other things to be God in your life. And now Mr. Wrong enters the equation, and then you guys live unhappily ever after, and you're going, how did this work? Here's what happened. What happened is you don't have a breastplate of righteousness. You have a form of religion in your life that's incredibly destructive. But at the core of your personhood is not wearing the righteousness of Christ, it's worshiping yourself. And the cockroaches and insects start manifesting, and you shove it all in a room that no one has access to. And then by the time you get to the stage where it's visible, everyone can smell the garbage. And what they're really saying is, now I can smell the invisible affecting the visible. This is how it plays out. This is the devastation of not wearing the breastplate. These sins that we carry, the enemy that's attacking and feeding off the sin is lust, greed, selfishness, lying, manipulation. And then most specifically, because when you come to New Life, you're going to hear things that are going to get in your face. Most specifically, if you are a man and your job is to lead, if you do not take the garbage out, if you do not wear the breastplate of righteousness, there will be major ramifications. Major ramifications. The church will always be fighting with an arm tied around its back if the home's not healthy, if pastors in the home, which is dad, are not leading. And so here's the good news. The last one, we'll close with this. What does it look like to live with righteousness, to live with chest protection? Paul says this two chapters earlier in Ephesians 4. He's talking about the old way of living, and now they're saved. He says to the Christians, he says, but that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So put off, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so your new self has a 10-foot rim, but has an ability to meet the standard because the standard's living in you. The spiritual heart is pumping life through the blood all throughout the body, and righteousness and holiness are the end goals in the process. The good news is, just like sin invites more sin, just like sin invites cockroaches and maggots to live, just like sin invites the enemy to have a stronghold or a foothold in your life, that's the bad news. But here's the good news, and this is how we're ending this thing. Sin invites more sin, but righteousness invites more righteousness. Righteousness invites more righteousness. 
And the really good news is this, because Jesus went to that cross, because the Holy Spirit lives in us, we have a choice to make. And the choice that we have to make is whether or not we're going to get ourselves dressed each morning when we wake up. That, that's within the realm as a Christian of our control. That when you grow up in Christ, your mommy doesn't dress you anymore. We go to our spiritual closet. We choose to put on the right clothes. We choose to wear the belt every day. We choose to put on the breastplate of righteousness every day. We choose to pick up the sword and fight off the attacks of the enemy in our life through the word of God that we understand, that we don't just hear it, we understand it, and then we proclaim it, and we live it. And when we do that, we're not just playing defense, we're playing offense. When we do that, we're not just taking a hit, we're giving a hit. And then when we live in that freedom, the Bible says this, he who the Son is set free is free indeed. That you and I have this choice to make to put on this breastplate every day to get ourselves dressed. And the real choice that we have to make as we close and the praise team comes back up is we have a choice to make as to whether or not we're going to live in bondage or freedom in Christ. If you're not saved, you're just going to live in bondage because the, the Holy Spirit hasn't woken up your heart and given you a spiritual heart. But if you're saved, you have a choice to live in freedom or in bondage. Bondage is concerned about what it can get away with. Freedom is concerned about what it has to stay away from and what it has to live for. Bondage is self-focused. Freedom is kingdom-focused. What does Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Bondage lives on the verge of breaking down. Freedom pursues a breakthrough. These are all my little one-liners. I actually wrote them this morning. I thought they were good. Here's the last one. Bondage spins its wheels. Freedom fires on all cylinders. You can live with freedom. And here, here's what it looks like to live in freedom. So this is kind of the gauge. Living in freedom isn't being perfect because we've all sinned and fallen short. We're going to sin by omission or commission. That's just a reality of the already but not yet. And so we look more like Christ each day, and that's our sanctification. But living with freedom in my life means living with transparency. This is who I am. I'm known. I'm a child of God. I was purchased by the blood of Jesus. I choose to wear his righteousness. I choose to get myself dressed each day. I'm not in charge. I submit to his will. I submit to his calling. I submit to his authority over my life. I give Jesus the spiritual and metaphorical keys to the car, the keys to my life. This is who I am, and I'm not perfect. But how I live is consistent with who I portray myself to be because I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I'm going to let that righteousness flow in and through me so that I, because I'm a new creation in Christ. And if you walk into this space today and you're tired of living in bondage, well, the answer is to repent and turn to Christ. And then believe the, the pages of Scripture when it says, He who the Son, or she who the Son has set free, is free indeed. That I used to look like this over here, and, and this was my legacy, and this was my story, but I don't have to live like this anymore, and my future can change, and my present can change, because the gospel changes everything. That I'm not coming in here just to feel good and, and hear some motivational thoughts. I'm coming in here to talk to Jesus this morning at 9.30 and lay my own life down at the foot of the cross. Because without him, I have no shot. I can't even dunk on an 8-foot rim. Don't give me 10 feet. I can't do it. That's you, not me. But you see what I'm saying? Like, like we can't accomplish the plans and purposes of God in our life if religion is our best outlet. It has to be through submitting to the righteousness of Christ that's placed on us, to the forgiveness of sins and the blood that was shed that Craig was singing about that first song. The gospel is not try harder. The gospel is surrender. 
And so we put on that righteousness daily. And when we do, the bondage starts to break. The freedom starts to be operated in. And it doesn't matter what our past looks like. That we have a hope and a future and a salvation that has nothing to do with us and everything to do with what Christ did in our place. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Help us to, to really dig into these ideas, Lord. We thank you for this armor that we can wear. And God, the culture of our church, and starting with me, Jesus, I repent of these, uh, all the ways that I've lived in a way that's unrighteous, that I've lived in a way that's inconsistent. Or, Jesus, you know all of our hearts that we're all sinners falling short. But we choose to wear your righteousness. We choose to take out the trash. And we choose to say you are the standard. Thank you for saving us. If there's anyone here who's never experienced your salvation through turning from their sins and following you, I pray right now they lay their life down at the foot of the cross. They believe on the work that you did to save them. And God, that you would make us righteous and we put on that breastplate. And I pray this in your precious and holy name. Everybody said, amen. Let's stand up. I hear that we're still having tech issues. The sermon will be loaded up in about an hour. But as we're walking through this series, invite your friends and family to hear these messages and bring them into this space. If I've never met you, I want to meet you. We have a gift for you at Starting Point. If you go to New Life, if this is your home, on the way out, tithe and fund the ministry. We're going to close with our final song. Lord, I come Oh, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest, and without you, I fall apart, you're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you, oh, I
temptation comes my way And when I cannot stand I'll fall on you Oh Jesus, you're my hope and stay this morning. We'll see you next week, New Life.